listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Vane. Uh, hey, baby. Publishers look gay. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Well, today I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Richard Bennett, Richie Bennett. Now, um, I've known Richie for, fuck, I don't even know how long, but it feels like a really long time. Um, He's one of those people that I've just known through being in the water, uh, always having a yak to whenever I see him. And I I knew that Richie's had a really interesting life. Um, Now, Richie... Richie is a psychologist and um, he was the first psychologist to work on the world tour in the early 2000s and um, before that they had never had a psychologist on the tour and they took um, and so then Richie was voted onto the tour as the, the tour psychologist and, and, and worked uh, for three years on tour going around the world with that and I, I knew that was happening at the time and I just thought that's just an amazing amazing thing he was able to marry two worlds of passion together it's pretty awesome and he's since written a few books um one of those books is called the surfer's mind and the other book is called a hundred dawns uh they're available online if you google those uh he's also worked for the ais the australian institute of sport and he's been to several olympic games he's worked for the olympics the paralympics the commonwealth games and the afl so um yeah, he, he is definitely uh, specialises in sports psychology and and is at the top of his game. He um, So we're lucky to have him in Janjak and uh, his services are, are available if anybody is looking. Just um, look up Richard Bennett, Richie Bennett in Juck Psychology. I'm sure you'll find him online. Um, so thanks so much, Richie, for coming over. Super stoked to have had you um, on and in the horse's mouth. Now, um, Richie brought his dog over, so there's a little bit of a kerfuffle at the start. We had a little bit of a rough go. We thought the dogs were just going to play outside and do their thing, and as dogs are dogs, they just wanted to be in with the human owners. Um, so there's a little bit of um, carry on at the start, but I sort of, yeah, I've chopped out a bit of it. So if, it, if there's any bit at the start that doesn't make sense, it's because we're navigating dogs. Um and uh, and so now I just wanted to give a shout out to um, another friend of mine, Jeff Rowley, uh, who's been on the show before. The show he's been uh, in the horse's mouth before, and um, and he has. Look, I know a lot of surfers listen to this, and um, I'm just going to give him a shout out. He hasn't asked me to do this, but. He has an online breathing course that specializes in CO2 and O2 tables. Now, if you're a surfer and you're looking to expand your lung capacity and breath hold capacity uh, in a in you know, in an ocean environment or any kind of environment, I, I've been using it lately because I cracked a rib, and it's been really helpful to work at a low level in the CO2 capacity to feel where my ribs are at through breathing in, holding breath and seeing just where the ribs are. But like, honestly, my, my sort of top breath hold was around two minutes and through doing Jeff's online course, 
uh, I was able to take my breath hold out to three minutes um, just by every day just doing what is required um, and he's got a video a different video for every day it's really cool and um, it's almost uh, a form of meditation I'd say because you're singularly working on one thing to do with the breath uh, you know from 20 to 30 minutes at a time and uh, so as a surfer you know that's pretty paramount um, having the lung capacity and also but just for life you know like um, having the lungs stretch and move is so good for your body I was gonna you know try and sound scientific then but look it's just good for you to breathe right stretch the lungs out get them going they're, they're I think they're the biggest organ in the body um, outside skin I'm sure there's people screaming right now they fucking this 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 anyway they're pretty big right the lungs um, anyway I won't waffle on anymore but look check it out it's called paddleinmastery.com um, and it's awesome and um, Richie thanks again all right, I'll see you on the other you side. This is, is interesting. Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total farfarama. Hi, this is David Bowie. Pretty things have gone to hell. Hello, For me, technology is kind of like anything from the wheel or the first, you know, chisel or hammer. It um, has a, a opportunity to just profoundly affect and improve even the human experience or productivity or whatever it might be. Um, however, it's all about how you, how you use it, you know. So, like, I love technology as, as, you know, something that is available to me in my lifetime at this point in time. You know, I remember when I bought my first house, I was down the coast, it was absolutely pumping, and if I didn't have a bank app on my phone, I would have had to drive back and physically go to the bank and transfer six figures to pay for this house. Whereas I could come in when I was going to come in anyway to have a drink and a bit of a snack and transfer six figures and paddle straight back out. So I love technology. <clears throat> and of course, with my work in sport and performance psychology and mentoring and other things I do globally, I mean, even when I was on the surf tour in 2000 and the net just started and Skype was available, uh, you know, it was great because you can't beat every beach, you can't beat every mountain with the winter sport athletes, you can't be in every city with the people that you're working with. However, you can be connected directly. And so I love technology and I also know the value of understanding how to use it well in terms of your self-care and your potential and literally your day-to-day -day cycle of good sleep and, you know, just um, maintaining the fundamentals of being a happy, healthy human, which is, uh, you know, a lot of actual in-person uh, relations and um, experiences like that and connections with nature and so when it's in balance I, I, I think uh, like anything it's it's great do you struggle to keep it in balance no I never really have actually yeah no it's it's just yeah it's just something um, that because I guess so much of my day is just out in nature and it just kind of always has been you know as, as we were sharing earlier Grew up with the beach being a really big part of our life because of the good fortune of having a beach house an hour down the road. Mum um, and dad, particularly dad, loved camping, so it's lots of camping trips that we did our whole life uh, or our whole life growing up and still do. Um, so nature and playing around with nature and animals, and, you know, we always had Labradors and, you know, we just had that experience. Um, even when, you know, we got a video player, the first video player with that 30-kilometre-long 
cable remote and things like this. <laughs> you know, just I, I just wasn't as into it. I enjoy watching movies, but I wasn't like you know kind of glued to the telly kind of stuff. And so when the technology came in, I remember the first mobile phones. I was working down the coast in Portland at the community mental health service. It was my first job out of uni, and the mobile phone was literally they called it the brick because it was like a brick. It was big. It was cumbersome. Uh, we had little pages at that time when you're on call and then you just had, you know, uh, a time frame that you had to get to a phone to respond to the page or if an emergency call happened. So the mobile kind of made a convenience there because the pager would still go off because that had better reception, but the phone was only like seconds or a minute away rather than having to, you know, sometimes go somewhere to get to a phone uh, when you're remote and rural to yeah, respond. yeah. So you could see the value of the technology, but it was quite cumbersome then. And back then, all the notes were, you know, paper and pencil for client notes and things like that. There weren't computer databases and all that. And, you know, I've maintained that all my professional notes as a psychologist are all written. Yeah. Um, unless, of course, I'm asked to do a report and then I'll, you know, I'll type and print or PDF that. Uh, but basically that's, um, yeah, I just kind of see what technology's there and how it's going to augment my life rather than um, overtake it, you know. So little simple things, like these aren't strategies I came up with, it's just how it's unfolded for me. My phone's never in my bedroom, I don't think it's ever been there. It's always gets charged in the kitchen. It's the last, you know, I turn it off. I have periods of time where I, I just consciously, I don't turn it on before 10 a.m. and it's off at kind of six. Um, so you, these are rules or you just go with the feel of the it's day? It's just how it's unfolded. Yeah. But like a work week... Because I know I'm going to be busy during kind of, you know, standard work hours and, and I do a bit of after hours stuff too. So quite often, like my morning's kind of my sanctuary. So, you know, quite often my phone won't even get turned on till 10, 10.30 because of the things that I like to do. My morning routines, I meditate or go for a swim or surf, or obviously take a dog for a run or swim or something like that. So I don't really need any technology and I find it's a really nice peaceful way to start your day because you don't have that stimuli you don't have that input it is changing a little with um, parents getting a bit older and uh, just that sense of I want to be contactable because mm. um, yeah you know their health and um, is, is changing so I've, I've kind of rethinking that at the moment and um, mm -hmm. you know when they've been in a phase of you know perhaps bit of ill health or you know they've had a few things going on then my phone is on a lot more but it's still not in my room I can hear a ring from the kitchen if, if, if that happens so yeah I'm, I haven't really been someone that's um, really taken up social media you know I mean I, I do have you know you, you're a couple of accounts that started when I was very active with Surfrider Foundation and, and on, on the committees and stuff so um, I set up yeah, well, actually, one of the community members set up, you know, your Facebook and Instagram for me originally, so that you could do the the Surf Rider page and those kinds of things. And um, uh, I can see the value of it for my business and what I do too. So that's another element that I've kind of been exploring a bit uh, in in recent. Well, yes, that's how slow I am with actually acting on the opportunities of technology. Uh, you know, to progress, say, in bigger waves or, or um, you know, there's a left down there that I find really challenging because we don't really mm -hmm. have much experience surfing challenging lefts uh, in Torquay area. And then it was, you know, you, I, I kind of started to discover a bit of the deeper elements of performance psychology. Um, like I'd done my psychology degree and did sports psych in my honours thesis. So can, we, can I just back that up? So you went to – you 
left school and you went straight into uni. Yeah, only because uh, there weren't any jobs. I was going to have a gap year and all that. But yeah, I ended up, I got a place at Deacon Warm Ponds. Yeah. So I grew up on the east side of Melbourne, Mount Waverley. And yeah, moved down here in 91 and did my uh, psychology degree, my undergrad and honours at uh, Deakin. Can I ask this, did you know in year 12 that's like year 11, 12, that that like psychology was a thing that you, uh, a field avenue that you wanted to go with? I didn't have it clear in my mind that it was a field as in a profession and I wanted to be a psychologist. I knew psychology was a profession because one of my good friends, his dad was a psychologist and I had a few yarns with him. Uh, when I was a lot younger, because I love animals and nature, I wanted to be a vet and you know, I did work experience in that. And you know, probably partly application, partly <laughs> uh, you know where my real interests were, the, the subjects you do and the grades you needed to go and do vet science. So I wasn't really in that realm. Um, so... I, uh, I, yeah, I was going to have a gap year and just work six months, travel surfing for six months, but it didn't unfold that way. I got the place at Deakin. And I'd always been very interested in the mine, and that's probably why I'd had discussions with my mate's dad and just other bits and pieces. Things like, you know, listening to Pink Floyd and, and wondering, oh, how, how do they come up with, you know, that those lyrics and this story, you know, uh, that they share in the lyrics. And then, of course, the music itself I just, was really moving for me as well. So humans' creativity and the way that you can express yourself and and share about quite intimate human experience in, in a way that resonates for literally millions of people in millions of individual ways because everyone will listen to it and feel it in their own way. And then, of course... Well, so can I just get you off when you say that, and I love that, with Pink Floyd as a reference, yeah. but my my just knee jerk go to is like, oh well, they let me experience drugs without actually having having to do them. <laughs> <laughs> well, what they did was stimulate your own internal pharmacy, mate. You're still high, just on your own. Is that Endorphins right? and oxytocin and other you know feel good brain chemistry. Because this still sound pretty weird. I mean, I, I've done it several times where I'll just have a nice hot bath in the dark, listen to Pink Floyd. Yeah, and I don't have I don't have to be high to get like this is fucking sick because you kind of trip just through the music. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's so many layers. I think that uh, don't you think know, I've ever told anyone the, the, that the human consciousness dances to when music's on. And, you know, I don't know all those layers. I just feel it and I haven't researched it in any depth. It's just one of those experiential things, I guess, where. You know, I kind of find it funny where someone might put hip hop on and it's you just don't even want to hear it, you know, because it's not resonating for you, it's not moving for you. Yeah. But interestingly, like I still listen to a lot of Floyd and that kind of music and Hendrix and things that I listened to when I was a really little kid because potentially there's a few layers of child mind consciousness that come back into the present moment as well. And then something I really love too is um, with some of those stories that they share, like in Animals or in Wish You Were Here or, you know, The Wall, these are stories about human experience. Um, as you grow older and you have similar human experiences, you, like there's another layer of access and, and, and where you feel touched by the lyrics or the music and all that kind of thing. So... Um, yeah, music's a really wonderful way to stimulate your internal pharmacy, if you like, um, but just on a on a just that beauty level without the physiology side. You know, you, every cell in your being feels like it's dancing and moving, and the dance moves can be quite different if you're listening to it at 30 or 40 than it was when you're 13 or 14 because life's changed and you've got more experiences that relate to those lyrics or a new part of the lyric 
comes out really clearly for you that you didn't really notice as a 12, 13-year-old because that wasn't where you were back then, present right. moment, or you didn't even understand some of the stuff <laughs> that they were singing about and, and uh, sharing about because you hadn't experienced it yet. I could waffle on this train of thought for fucking ages, but let's go back to you were then um, deacon. Yeah, and one of the ways I found psychology was this genuine interest. In fact, I wanted to do psychology in year 12, but it was back then Group 2 HSC, so I didn't end up taking it up. But I had an interest in the mind and the heart and the, and the human consciousness and all that kind of stuff, and mainly through two areas. One was the music, which we just shared about, and the other was, of course, surfing, this amazing experience of connecting with nature and, and where that takes you internally as well as around the oceans and, you know, conversations and just where it takes you. And, um, you know, my bedroom wall was just covered in all the big wave you know, spreads and things like that because I was always just blown away by how can these surfers just ride waves that are literally moving mountains and they could die and, you know, one or two had. And um, I always wondered, yeah, that's pretty amazing that people consciously, voluntarily face their mortality, you know. So I always had this interest in the mind about those kind of things. And um, for me, surfing was always a way to work to my edge as well, just in a really playful way. I wasn't conscious in my teens about all this, but I do remember, you know, you've kind of got your peer group. We used to call them horry sets at Gunner Matter. They'd just come in and close out the whole beach. It'd be like a four-foot day, but then a five or six-footer would close the whole bank out. And I'd try and catch them just for the drop because I know I'm not going to make it. Um, but well, and you were kind of, I don't know about you, but I always wanted to be known as a charger. Oh, I didn't really think of it that much until I moved to Torquay because there was a really, you know, established hierarchy here and, and there were there are genuine charges here. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, you kind of, you didn't really see that on the beaches, on the peninsula kind of stuff. It was just play with friends, you know, you can yeah. take the biggest, biggest one or you, or you want to pull in and just get that, that vision, you know, you're going to get obliterated, but you want to get that inside the tube vision. So you just pull in the closeouts and stuff. Um, so I, I just really enjoyed those experiences. And, and so when I went to Deakin, I, I got allocated um, a mentor for the first three months. And uh, he was like, oh, you know, I was just Deakin Arts. You know, I did pretty rank in year 12. So I got Deakin Arts in warm ponds back then. Um, anyway, and he this this guy was asking me oh what are your interests and all that and we were talking about psychology and things like that and he was it was quite funny because I remember he was um he was just saying oh what is it about psychology oh the surfing and he, he was thinking this guy's not gonna turn up he's living in Torquay and all that so uh, I remember he said to me um well Rich you know if you're trying to decide between these couple of streams psychology is compulsory for first year nurses and there's about 300 girls register this year for first year nursing so they'll put me down for psychology you know so I actually did attend quite a few lectures and actually really enjoyed it you know it was really good there was a a group of lecturers I think that were they're all pretty young and pretty like frothing on psychology and how to share experience like experiential learning of psychology with activities and all sorts of things so it really kind of touched me and I thought yeah this is something I'm really into so, um, and then when it came to third year, they were letting us know, well, if you're interested in a career in psychology, this is actually how it works. You know, you've got to do a fourth year and then two years, either master's, PhD or 
practice out in the field under supervision. But there was this real line in the sand to get into your fourth year, the, the, the honours or the postgraduate diploma in terms of marks, like HDs basically are distinctions. So, Sorry to cut off, but isn't there a chance that like I've heard this, that if, even if you do the fourth year, there's a chance that you might not, you could fail that and still have spent four years trying to get to this point and then not be allowed to go on. Is that right? Oh, I think with, yeah, any degree, you got to pass it to progress <laughs> to the next level. Yeah, so I'm sure that applied to psychology yeah. uh, and, and your pathways in psychology. So I remember when third year came, uh, you know, the contact hours were going to go up as well. So I thought I'll do that over two years because I'm having fun surfing. I like the low contact hours. And uh, so I did really well in third year and I got a place at Warm Ponds, um, Deacon Warm Ponds for my honours. And that's when I did sport because I thought I don't, I don't vision myself as the classic, you know, studio or clinic kind of setting, psychologists working in mental health and all that. I'd, I'd just never even had a touch point of mental health to that point in my life anyway, so I didn't know much about it. I was more interested, as I said, in performers, you know, musicians and surfers, big wave riders and all that kind of stuff. And um, So I did a sports psychology topic in my honours, but then when I finished there, unless you had PhD or lots of years of experience, you know, we're talking mid-90s, there just wasn't many options to do placements or get a job in sport or performance because you really either need to be fully registered or get into a master's PhD program, and I didn't want to study anymore. Um, So I got a job, just a a colleague of mine or his lecturer at Deakin, he said, well, just, you know, do the two-year supervision and get your registration, then the world's your oyster, then go where you want to go. It was great advice at the time. So I did, I applied for that job at Portland and that was one of those programs where you work full-time, you do 100 hours of supervision, like an hour a week, 50 50 weeks a year, and uh, then you get your general registration, then off you go in whatever field you want to do, so... Um, yeah, Portland was epic in so many spheres. When I actually moved there, I had a really heavy physical injury too and I actually had barely surfed for about nine months. In fact, I didn't surf for about nine months. I barely surfed for a year. Was that what happened? Oh, I, I um, really damaged – well, it's a, it's the simple description is I had very significant inflamed lateral epicondylitis, which is tennis elbow basically. Oh, fuck, yeah. But, but it happened through uh, a few events – like I was working as a cook in a kitchen, so very manual and lifting and, mm. and using my hands and wrists a lot. And then I had the misfortune of, a, of just an accident. I fell and really badly sprained my wrist. And then I had my uh, thesis to type. Or it all kind of converged at once. So the actual injuries I had weren't deal breakers, but collectively, you know, doing that thesis and all that kind of stuff, it just irritated just dramatically um, my elbows and and to the point where picking up a litre of milk to pour on my cereal or cleaning my teeth was really, really uncomfortable. And I think there might have been some ligament or something damaging the elbows too. But um, So when I got to Portland, I actually, you know, I was barely surfing um, and I thought, and the physio and all that, I had good people, but I just felt like I was plateaued. I hadn't actually got the improvement I was looking for. And I thought, I'm going to take up yoga and just try an Eastern tradition. And I'd always had an interest in that anyway 
and I want to learn how to meditate properly. So I took up a yoga class in Portland and um, I remember I, I went to it early just to uh, let the teacher know, hey, I've got this you know, injury and, and he was like, yeah, no worries, thanks for telling me. What I'll do is I'll demonstrate asanas but you just pause and then I'll come and give you the adjustment. So, you know, like downward dog was kind of on my forearms instead of my hands so it wasn't too much on my elbows and things like this. And um, so after the class... I just stayed aside and um, uh, so I could thank him and all that. He, he was unreal. And um, he's like, oh, he asked me more about my elbows and what was going on. And and um, I told him the story and, and he said, oh, have you heard of Reiki? And I said, no, I haven't heard of Reiki. And, and he's like, oh, I'll, I'll put hands on you now. So he put hands on my elbows. And he was telling me about what Reiki is, you know, universal life energy, the Asui tradition from Japan. And that, of course, there's a physical healing component, but there's a metaphysical and what's the psychology, basically, that might have been the underlying uh, catalyst or origin for this manifestation of injury in my elbows. And, like, uh, my mind's just getting blown because I never, had never even thought of mind body in that way and metaphysical and it was it was really profound because it's, it's kind of that moment where ideally all of us at some point actually have an awakening where you realize you know you're a conscious being and you're actually in command here not control i'm really you know quite intentional about the difference between command and control but you're in command of what you're manifesting how you respond to things what you um how you resolve things you know all that kind of stuff and it was it was amazing like react to things yeah, oh, well, I, I like to respond to things. Reacting's got another kind, comes from another place, but yeah, responding. So he... Um, Fucking stop, hold on. Can we just go there a little bit? So responding and reacting, you can like fine-tunely split those apart. A reaction yeah. is involuntary yeah, and, and responding it. is a measured, thoughtful... Is this the difference? Yeah, in a very basic way. Like I I, I would put a reaction in the realm of an instinctual kind of movement. And then when you look at instincts, that's things, you know, like... um, Fight or flight? Yeah, yeah, that's things like uh, survival, basically. I'll I'll just say survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's your survive mechanism. And then your thrive mechanism is more your intuition and your your intentional response to things, which can still happen present moment and even you have those uh, sensory experiences or intuitive experiences where you're responding almost ahead of the moment because you're so in tune with something. You, know, you think of riding a wave or, you know, a, um, a chord change or some kind of melody change in, in, in a music or something like that. There's just real flow that's going on. So it's one of the ways in performance psychology um, that I share with people to try and discern instinct and intuition uh, is because, you know, instinct's a lot about surviving. You know, everyone has instinctual drives, you know, reproduce, eat, sleep, and then your, your fear set up so that you're dealing with threats and, you know, there's instinctive responses that sometimes there is no thought at all because the body just needs to move to survive. Whereas your, your thrive side, you know, for me, that's high performance, that's evolving your potential. And uh, so that's where your intuition, you know, that part of your consciousness, I kind of just describe it in lay terms as, the, I guess, the highest 
functioning part of your consciousness in a performance setting because you're not actually going through too much conscious processing you can uh, but when you're in the moment actually performing you know ideally you're just observing responding and uh, reactions can sometimes be a little slow or they can you know just be um, this is really important for people that are trying to change habits the reaction can be the old tried and true habit even though it's not the one that's ideal because it's been so repeated and ingrained whereas the uh, you know if you're intentional to thrive here and you'll observe and respond in a way that's going to assist you you know thrive is pb personal best you, you're really operating at your edge your full potential love it thank you yeah, for indulging that little hair split yeah. <laughs> yeah we can do command and control at some point too if you want but um yeah, so that experience with his name is Ramon Francis, by the way, my yoga teacher and dear friend, yeah, um, yeah, very dear close friend. So Ramon said to me, "Oh, well, why don't you come back to my house and me and Catherine, his wife, will give you a, a, a reiki." And like, I just met this guy. You know, who is this guy? He's, you know, he's done this beautiful way of keeping me safe in his yoga class, and then he's just yeah, wanting to know more about my injury and and how he can help basically. <laughs> and uh, opening my mind to Reiki and consciousness and just the things he was sharing about. And, um, and he'd been through all this himself and it's kind of, you know, how it helped him change and so he was just sharing the learning. So him and his wife gave me a couple of Reikis. I got introduced to the Reiki Centre in Warrnambool, Life Resource Reiki Centre down there just a bit past Logan's Beach uh, where the whales, the whale platform is. Learnt Reiki, share Reiki. I've been uh, the understandings of it is what uh, is still part of how I practice psychology, as well as do my own self study and and healing and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so there were so many layers of how I was touched and and changed in Portland. The surfing was amazing, and I felt like I was on a, just a whole new surfing frontier that I'd never been to. And there were waves that challenged me in ways I hadn't been challenged before. And then there was realizing how much I want it. Uh, in terms of bigger waves and, and the challenges because there wasn't people around. There wasn't a peer group like I'd developed here in Torquay during my uni days. Um, and then I had this, in terms of my professional development, I had just the most amazing psychologist as a supervisor, um, this um, Carol Holbert, who was a, um, a lecturer and a, or you know, professor at Melbourne Uni and, and a real specialist in personality disorders and mental health and all that, and just a really wonderful human who just really knew how to nurture young psychologists, basically. She was just awesome. So the professional side was being nurtured beautifully in that space as well as uh, the colleagues I had in that uh that team there they were all 10 plus year experienced psychiatric nurses and it was right in this phase where in Victoria or maybe Australia but in Victoria they were transforming the mental health services from uh, you know psych nurses in the community to psychologists social workers OTs it was kind of that shift to multidisciplinary allied health model of mental health services in the community and the psych nurses were more being aligned back to inpatient and that kind of stuff I think uh, but I was blessed because there was four in that team. You know, there's one guy from Ireland who'd worked in some of the heaviest forensic psychiatric, you know, jails over there. You know, he'd, he'd work with people that are really at the extreme end of human experience and risk and all that kind of stuff. And so I learned, you know, by experience, the fundamentals of how to work with people with serious 
mental illness and issues like that and challenges like that as well as high-risk behaviour, harming self, harming others. Um, sometimes it was accidental self-harm because they take high risks without insight to what the potential consequences were because of their uh, impaired mental state or other reasons. And there was drug and alcohol challenges as well because when you're rural, you just do everything. You don't have your team. So we were frontline emergency response with a beeper on, going out to a farm at three in the morning to manage a situation right through to long-term case management. And uh, so I had that team around me and then um, there's a couple of um, Aboriginal communities down there, Windermara and Goodinchamara near Haywood, Haywood and Dartmoor and around there. And there was young people presenting quite unwell and I was young so I was being matched to them as their case manager and all that and I was just thinking wow this is these ways that we're trying to assist are not working it's not aligned you know and um, there's a couple of co-ops there I started speaking to the elders at the co-ops about well you know this is kind of what happens young person becomes unwell young indigenous person becomes unwell they meet criteria for admission they get admitted they get sedated they get calmed down basically and then they get discharged but like where's the support like where's the fix where's the preventative measures all this kind of stuff you know and, and it was part of their heartache as well because they're kind of in a position of well that's kind of what the legislation is and we're trying to work out how to help too was this cycle that you were witnessing there unprecedented or was this been going on this cycle with youth before you do you know what I mean or is this uh, a newfound conundrum within the communities because of modern world or uh, I would suggest and this is just my lay understanding I would suggest it was a challenge since colonisation yeah <laughs> you know um, so introducing things like alcohol and stuff the um well, what I do know, like psychology isn't a medical degree, so I don't know this at high end, but what I did experience down there is that when the psychiatrist might prescribe medications to Indigenous people, it would be something like a quarter or a tenth of the usual dose because the lineage of their physiology is so pure in terms of connection to nature that any kind of foreign chemical had a dramatic impact Whereas the dose for a Western person with a different lineage and our, you know, since industrial revolution, basically our exposure to things that aren't nature uh, means we've got all different resiliences physiologically that are built up and psychologically or neuropsychologically that are built up. So we'd have different doses as, in, you know, Western people. So I do know, and then, you know, alcohol is a classic, isn't it? It's kind of like um, that would affect them more than you know, Western people that have got a bit of a lineage of alcohol being in our culture for so many decades or centuries. So it was probably already there. You know, I was important for a cross-section of three years, so I'm sure it was happening. Um, so what I did was I applied to the government for a grant to get some money to do a project with them. We called it Pathways to Best Practice to create culturally sensitive and effective um, support systems for, you know, the, the, the mobs in Windermar and Goodnichamara. And uh, what it involved was going walkabout with the elders taking the youngsters walk about with the elders when they were either showing early warning signs of becoming well or erratic behaviour or, you know, vulnerabilities arising. And so we connect them more deeply with country, community and culture. And that's what their origin is. And also that's all good teachings too because that's, you know, if, if we use our words, that's values of the society, that's, uh, you know, skills, dev, develop a skill and people feel good about, you know, literally making a boomerang or making a didgeridoo or listening to stories of dream time, you know, and where they fit in with that. Uh, so it really brought down the admissions 
and it also had a preventative effect because the younger people started to see the value of their culture and that that being torn or being, you know, yeah, well, torn or seduced by some of the seductions out here, you know, peer groups, pubs, all that kind of stuff, uh, they, they grow a little, they become a bit more aligned with their community and have a bit more of a, I guess, an in, in their psyche, a bit more of a platform to make better decisions about their behaviour and where, where and where they went and what they did and things like that. Well, it fills in their own story a bit more too. And like, I think once you, when you've got a grounding of like um, who you are and your connection to, um, you know, your lineage yeah. helps you put your feet on the ground a little bit more, especially when it's connected with nature. Yeah. I say this is sound weird, but I, I, I love um, indigenous culture and, and ways of being. And I almost feel more connected not that I live that life, but to that ethos than the ethos that's been served to us today through our own Western means and way and what we're being pushed to 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 think is uh, the right life. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and, and I think, it, like, I can I just jump in? I just keep thinking about it because I know that Steiner is really connected with nature and his meditations mm. and ethoses are all connected with more on, you know, really seeing nature and the answers being there for us if we are connected with it. Yeah. But it's fucking, like that's not connected to your phone and that's not connected to paying the mortgage and that's not connected to, you know, the, the modern stresses. Mm. So it's really hard to detach and replug. Fuck. Yeah, well, if you either allow yourself or find yourself getting caught up in that disconnect, then, yeah, you, you've got more challenges to deal with. Whereas if you make some good decisions about here's the fundamentals for me to be a happy, healthy human literally on a day-to-day basis, then a little bit like we were sharing earlier about the values of technology, I can dip in and use a bit of technology and that's going to help me stay in the water for longer during the day because all I've got to do is a bank transfer on a phone rather than drive back to Torquay, go to a bank and waste half a day to do something. So, yeah, once you, for me, it's just all decision-making. But I do know, and this is one of the reasons psychology and mental health is uh, unfortunately a growing space, uh, is that a lot of people either allow or found themselves caught up in the, the busyness and the very strong conditioning to be externally focused for your answers and for what's considered success and these kind of things in, in our modern world. So it's quite interesting in Portland because I had such a movement towards, you know, Eastern teachings, you know, Australian, you know, First Nations people teachings and that way of life and those understandings about the human psyche. And, um, you know, like an evolutionary, in evolutionary theory, they say it takes about 40,000 years to get a significant change in the, in the state of the human. So drop the tail, develop lungs from gills, things like that. And I know neuroplasticity probably moves a little bit quicker than that, but, you know, it takes time for a human to evolve and we're purpose-built and have profound capacity to adapt to a changing environment. You know, it's part of our, uh, why we're probably the apex species on the planet, right? Um, but there's still potentially what's been going on in the last even just 20 to 30 years, how rapid the change has been in terms of way of life, how much stimulation people are dealing with, moment to moment you know whether the the brain physiologically and then our conditioning to be immersed in that you know it's kind of it's um 
nurturing the disconnect rather than nurturing the deeper connection to your own human nature and our mother nature, which is the basis for being happy and healthy in my understanding. Yeah, well, like, you know, a question that's often asked me is, are you busy? You know, and the the response that's required is yeah. And and if I say yeah, oh, that's good. You know, and it's like, but I'm not sure that being busy is always good. Yeah, I, I, people ask that with quite a presumption of me because I'm a psychologist and there's so much in the media and, and so much actually really happening in terms of challenges uh, with people's mental health. And they say, oh, you must just be so busy. And um, I say, well, I do know I could be, but I choose not to be. And uh, they're like, oh, you know, kind of, so, you know, must be a lot of need, like you're just cruising. And you know, it's like, no, in psychology, by nature, your work is so mental. And so if I'm seeing five, six, seven people in a day, the fifth, sixth, seventh person is now seeing someone who's mentally fatigued, so I cannot give them my best. You know, you look at high performance, you know. So if, if you ask someone to do a 100-metre sprint but ask them firstly to do 10,000 metres, what's the quality of their 100-metre sprint, you know? So I'm quite intentional for at least two reasons to have a really good balance of my session work. One is so that I can be in PB space for the third or fourth person that day. I don't see more than four people in a day. So I can deliver them my best because that's what they deserve, you know. And, and you know that that's whether I'm surfing or in a session with with a, with a client. It's there's a buzz, there's a, there's, a, there's a reciprocal kind of gain here. They're getting the best service, and I love what I do, and that feels good to be able to deliver that, you know. And the second reason is for me anyway. Um, by nature, every now and then, a person I'm working with might want a catch-up at short notice. So if I'm six, seven people a day booked out two weeks ahead, well, how do I offer that as well? The other part is, particularly with my work in performance psychology and mentoring, there's like having the flexibility around that really serves that purpose uh, or really serves those groups. So with my local private practice, I just have the same. So I can be... Uh, you know, people can quite often uh, book in within 24 hours with me and um, and that's still not pushing me to five, six, seven sessions in a day. It's keeping me within a realm of balance. And then, you know, the walkie-talk I think is pretty important. So if I'm working with people and they're at the edge in terms of their coping ability and point of overwhelm because of the busyness of life and that's so out of balance and I'm there too, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to go see someone with a disturbed mind to fix my disturbed mind. You know, I'd want to go see someone that's balanced and calm and clear and has, you know, uh, a really good role modelling if that's going to help me and my disturbed mind now come back into a point of peace and clarity so I can make good decisions and be my own self-psychologist so I can go forward with a balanced day, a balanced life. And uh, we all do have those phases where things are just busier but again, a little bit like, um, you know, the, any athlete that's uh, getting ready for like, say, Olympics or a major event, you'll have, they'll taper. So they'll do, their ad- they'll do their adapting, you know, they'll really get the physiology, psychology, skill set, equipment, they'll, do, they'll be having loads, high workloads. But then when they know it's time, you know, 10, 14, 20 days out of the major event, they'll start to taper so that they've got everything energy-wise, physically, consciously, 
of ready and available rather than in some way fatigued or not mm. quite ready or available. Mm. So, you know, we can do that in daily life. You don't need to be an elite athlete. If you're a young person at school, you can taper a little when you know you've got your exams coming up. If you're bringing a newborn into your life, well, you can taper a little so that it's not just a car down tools today and I'm at the hospital tomorrow now I've got a newborn and I've got one week to enjoy this kind of thing. Um, yeah, and I actually even taper before holidays. Mm. Well, I spend the first week of my holiday exhausted and... <laughs> You know, instead, you know, I'm going on a boat trip in the Maldives. I want to be surfing. The moment I get there, I want to feel fresh and make the most of this. So I actually taper before holidays. So I make the most of my holidays. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um, I love this idea of tapering. And like I, I noticed it um, that I recently I had a forced taper. I injured myself and I'd been training heaps. And I was surfing heaps and I was getting a bit tightly wound and then I injured myself and as soon as I did it, I was like, of course. Like if I think about my frame of mind, going into that yeah. manoeuvre that caused the injury, I was not doing it with love, let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was out of aggression. Yeah. And, uh, and and I was supposed to be at a meeting as well and I bounced the meeting to go for a surf and it was just all and I was like oh, my headspace is wrong so I had a forced well I'm still not surfing so it's nearly been six weeks yeah okay but I'm back training and yeah. there's just a couple of moves that I've got to protect myself in and I don't do and then but so anyway I've noticed my energy in training is bang on because I had a good part of four weeks off yeah and we had to do some cardio work recently and I couldn't believe how, how much I had like more than when I was before yeah. Because the body, I'm guessing, was rested. Mm. Yeah, well, the being was rested. The body's part of it, of course, but the being, you know, because yeah. there was, um, yeah, the mind will use more energy and use energy more quickly than the body ever can. Classic example, panic. You go from zero to panic, and uh, the experience of that straight after that is pretty significant fatigue. There's a huge amount of adrenaline. There's a very big burst of mental energy that's used in that experience. So, you know, when you relate that to big waves or situations where people need to perform but they go into the fear space, you know, that's it's fairly uh, critical, really. Well, after being in a certain circumstance like that a while ago, I was in a, a, a zone in the surf where I was fearful but enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and didn't and did but it was definitely on the stretching side of things yeah and then the next day I went to a workout I couldn't finish it yeah like, I was completely halfway through I was just tapped I had nothing my adrenals everything was just yeah yeah and I reckon most of that was probably in the mind you know just coping mechanisms like yeah. counting strokes uh, trying to keep cool for, for big waves and large predators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I always think of the whole being because, like, psyche, you know, the, the origin of that word psyche is mind, body, spirit. And, you know, potentially an understanding that, 
your body has its own consciousness and intelligence and you can actually see that unfold in performance when you know it's like anything no different to physically seeing the biomechanics unfold if you study the biomechanics of movement more deeply you see it all unfold and the forces through the levers and all that you can see the intellect of the body unfolding when you look at that a little more deeply so you know the whole mind body spirit is you know that psyche or psychology and uh, it's, it uses a lot of energy and, um, yeah, people often feel quite significant fatigue after a big event like you just described and a lot of it is a mental fatigue. Um, yeah, yeah. Such a high too, like getting through it and then the high afterwards. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. But then, yeah. like, as you say this, the whole thing, um, I, I, and I just related it back to myself, but like... Uh, you know, a year, I suppose, I haven't had a drink now for a long time. And a year after I stopped, I got type 1 diabetes at 34. And I, the more that you talk now and the more I think about it, and I've been thinking about this shit for a really long time, but I, you talk about the mind, body, soul, whatever. Did you, is that the three that you were compressing? Yeah, mind, before? body, spirit. Mind, body, spirit. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and, and, that's a real breakdown of something happening with the pancreas and I definitely think that there's something in the, the 10 years pre-leading that with the way I was probably operating and thinking. You know, it didn't just happen out of the fucking blue. Mm. You know? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, and I always sort of, I don't trip myself out about it anymore but I was just like, okay, well, had I been more in tune with myself through that period, would that still have happened? Yeah. Or was that always going to happen? You know, like, I I don't think so. Yeah. I'm not asking for an answer, but, like, you know, it's, no, it's, it's funny. No, it's, it's, really, it's really good of you to share something like that because that's a really hard experience, life experience, I reckon. You know, something's shifted in your body and, um, you know, with the benefit of more knowledge and hindsight, we can look back and, like, that. that's... You know, I reckon that's mentally a pretty challenging thing. I've found that myself too. You kind of like, what's the reason I manifested this pain or this adversity? You know, because sometimes it doesn't impact the body. It's an adversity, as in uh, a friend, the nature of a friendship or relationships changed or something like that. You know, and you just kind of like, you know, that's also part of your conscious being, and and then the collective consciousness and things moving in that way and yeah what, what is it about me and how I've been thinking behaving you know because um, you go to that metaphysical understanding it's like well where where I, it's all just either totally random and then you know there's a sense of fear and vulnerability about that or actually I'm a conscious being that can create and allow things and manifest uh, so what's the reason I've manifested this adversity <laughs> you know and I, I, I've found that, um, yeah, the, the challenge of it, like, you know, is you, you feel responsible. What if I change this? What if I do that way? You can feel a bit goofy or, you know, I've done something to myself that's just put me in an uncomfortable space now. But um, whatever's happened has happened and the realisation that, well, okay, I'm in this present moment with this experience. Well, now it's about, well, what can I do moving forward? So that, um, you know, my, the next present moment's a little nice, a little easier, and, and then what might spin off from this, you know, whether it's a little bit like uh, <clears throat> Ramon, my first yoga teacher, he had his physical challenges and learnt and healed, 
and so he was now sharing that and you know i mean that's one of the things i love about psychology the more i learn and understand the mind the more i've got uh to share to assist other people's learning and understanding so that maybe they don't make the same mistakes as me or other people or the same mistakes that they keep repeating themselves because they haven't had the awakening yet it's a trip man yeah yeah it's life (laughs) well no totally and like i feel i feel lucky that like i can explore it you know like i you know been on a bit of a creative jaunt for a while and um and because i not through design but i haven't i'm not married and i don't have kids it's allowed me a bit more luxury to be a bit more self-indulgent as to like okay well what is making me tick what makes me feel good what doesn't make me Mm. feel good when do i feel grounded you know what actions and yeah it's been especially the last uh, you know 10 years is definitely like the you know from 16 through to 33 i didn't give a fuck but i really did give a fuck but i i tricked myself that I didn't maybe like I love surfing I still had pretty good relationships in my life yeah there was a whole aspect of like my behavior didn't reflect that so much yeah yeah the last 10 and especially like lately I sort of I'm really aware of what what things are taking me away from like allowing me to keep living a creative process yeah and you know there is a lot of um things that uh if I was to say yes to or commit to, which are things that I really would love that, that offer support, like owning a house. Yeah. Um, but is that going to hamstring me? Because some months my wage would allow for it and other months it wouldn't. And so am I doing it to, for the safety of a house, going to forego the dream of having, making it in a creative sense? Yeah. Does that make a bit of sense? Yeah. Yeah, every life experience, you know, there's opportunity, like they raise questions. So like listening to you then, one of the questions is, well, what actually is my relationship to money and the capitalist reality that we live in in Australia? Because that's where the mortgage and the house and that kind of part of that is there. But what I really love with what you shared in the beginning there is just your, um, your intention and devotion to creativity. As for me, we are creative beings. And, you know, if you're a musician or a dancer or a painter or something, that's kind of outwardly the creative person, but every human on the planet is creative. And, in fact, we're all co-creative because you don't do anything alone either. That's right, yeah. You know, we're co-creative with nature the moment we pop out because the first thing we do is have a breath and now we're co-creative with nature, our life, because if we don't breathe, that stops. So co-creation is part of our whole being and whole lifespan existence. And so when we get a little out of balance, we tend to be less creative, more narrow, more repetitive. And if one of those patterns isn't great, we're repeating patterns that aren't great. (laughs) There's no rocket science to this, mate. But when you kind of sit back and go, you know, these patterns are leading to um, adversity or I just don't feel like I'm operating at full potential or there's more, then we actually take stock and we start to look at our life and what's happened, where we've come from, where we are today. We start to maybe vision where we want to go. And that part demands, but, you know, demand not as in you have to. Isn't it beautiful that creativity and our, our amazing gifts of being creative is what's going to open up to where we want to go and how that unfolds, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, now, going back, 
Nah. We still haven't left Portland. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Fuck. Part of my being, hasn't it? It's, it's such a beautiful place. And yeah. Yeah. And just going back to there, you were talking about, you know, that adventure that you had there and just like going down a track, seeing what's here. And, you know, yeah. I had a similar experience. I split and spent close to a year in Mark's first year out of school. Oh, great. And didn't know. I knew one person down there. Uh, and so it was, the, you know, a lot of time alone and just sussing it out and figuring things out and exploring. And, yeah, it was yeah. epic. Um, so, that, uh, I, yeah, I was thinking about that too when you were saying that was your relationship there and with the people. When you go somewhere alone, how much more you are open to meeting people. Yeah. You know, if you go somewhere, like I love travelling alone for that that reason. Yeah. Um, when you're with people it's harder to allow other people in, you know, because you're on a different trip. Mm. Anyway, blah, mm. blah. So then you left Portland and came back to Torquay. Uh, well, when I was in Portland, one of the things that happened, a lot of serendipity, but, you know, however you want to describe it, that's where I really manifested the opportunity to work on the ASP World Tour, WSL now, but back then it was a not-for-profit ASP World Tour. And um, I... Uh, was playing around in the surf down there and started writing articles about my, like, surf psychology articles, you know, how to manage fear in big waves because that's what I was playing with a lot, you know, with me wanting to surf bigger waves and challenge myself in that way. How to use mind surfing or mental imagery to improve your surfing. What's the psychology of flow, the peak experience or peak performance state and how that, you know, relate that to cheer riding. I think I did one piece on the cultural side too, the, the values of localism, you know, um, and how that can really nurture a space as well as some of, uh, you know, the elements of localism that might not be ideal behaviour. And there were some really good responses to those articles uh, published in tracks like late 99 and um, from some pro surfers. And, you know, I've, I've never done anything in surfing, mate, you know, like I've never done competition really. I don't know anyone in the world of surfing at this point in time. Uh, but, yeah, it just unfolded that I ended up having a chat with Robbie Bain and Rabbit Bartholomew and, and there are a couple of people that were, well, Rabbit was just recently the president of the tour and he was really interested in the psychology of surfing because in his own experiential way in the 70s when he was in his prime, he was playing around with that, like imagining surfing big waves in Hawaii because there's no big waves in the Gold Coast at that scale, you know, mm-hmm. and well, how do you actually surf well in big waves if you can't get the practice where you use mental imagery? And he also talked about surfing really small, weak waves. He would mentally imagine he was on a dance floor because you're busting all these moves because the wave's not giving you any energy, like the dance floor is kind of inert, mm-hmm. whereas when it's big waves, it's harness channel the energy, so it's a bit different. And uh, Robbie Bain, uh, he was, you know, top five in the world, had been for a while, a, a manly surfer, and there was a major event at Manly every year, and he, he just couldn't win it for one or whatever reason. Of course, you want to win the big event at your home beach when you're one of the best in the world. And uh, so he, he, I think his sister was a clinical psych or something, and he tapped into her understandings and might have tapped into one or two others. And he said, you know, he got some strategies, and he went, you know, the next year he actually won that, and it was one of the pinnacles of his career to win his home beach, you know, WCT event. And through those conversations, it kind of, like, I'd always wanted to travel the world surfing, and I thought I was going to be a surf photographer because I love photography, but I, I remember the first time I went to the beach when it was pumping with a camera, 
And my brother's like, oh, great day for photos, but all I wanted to do was surf. So my surf photography career died in the water that day because <laughs> I went surfing instead of taking photos because I just couldn't watch, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so then this thing unfolds where I've got like a top five surfer in the world going, oh, mate, your skills would be really good on the tour. You know, it's, of course, there's performing better, but he said there's a lot that goes on in the background that's pretty challenging for surfers. You know, there wasn't much money back then. There's long-distance relationships and long-distance parenting for some of them. You know, you miss your kids. you got a lot going on like that, um, that where just general well-being, mental health, uh, services is going to be just as important, you know, looking after the person as well as the performer. And then Rabbit's like, yeah, well, you know, put a proposal to the tour and it's not for profit, mate. The surfers have 55% of the vote. If they're interested in having a psychology service on tour, I will let you know. So I did that. And um, there was another guy, Bushy Mitchell, who was part of that kind of process. He um, caught up with him after I put the proposal in. He said, oh, yeah, the surfers were unanimous. They thought, what a great idea have a psychologist on tour with those skills. So that's how it unfolded that um, I started travelling the world on the ASP World Tour um, in 2000. I did four seasons thousand oh one oh two and most of oh three i started to write my book the surfer's mind in oh three and once i finished the aussie league i kind of thought oh, i'll i'll hang back in torquay so i kind of moved back here then in oh four you know late oh three to finish the manuscript for the surfer's mind and launched that in oh four april oh four at the bells event at easter here and I had the intention of going back on tour and selling it around the world, but the internet had moved a lot then with like online stores. And then one of my colleagues said to me, um, I was just talking to him about the surf tour and I'd been on it for three and a half years and it's a small group of people relatively. Uh, And he said, oh, you should really start challenging yourself more broadly in terms of your sport performance experiences because in surfing there wasn't really much coaching when I was on tour I know there's a lot now but when I was on tour there wasn't really much coaching it was actually a lot more peer uh, support for each other you know and uh, yeah I would do my role with the surfers both in looking after the person as well as performance psychology and uh, little bits and pieces with ASP on things like judging and discipline and things like that Um, but basically I had a pretty narrow skill set I'd been a sports psychologist for four years and written a book about it and I still hadn't worked with a team I hadn't worked with a coaching panel I hadn't worked with a sports science sports medicine panel around like as is part of the entourage supporting athletes so um yeah he said I you know see what's out there maybe uh yeah see if you can expand your professional experiences and it's only going to help your surf psychology because the more I learn from other athletes the more I can give to this area of passion and this unique kind of niche that I'd, I'd created so I did I got a job in at the New South Wales Institute of Sport started there in January 05 and yeah wow that was awesome because um that was in Australia, the AIS, SAS, the Institute of Sport, State and, and um, Institutes and Academies service all the Games campaigns, so Commonwealth Games, Summer and Winter Olympics and Paralympics. And uh, so that's what I was opened up to. And, um, yeah, it's just phenomenal to um, work with coaches and coaching panels for individuals and teams and then sports science, sports medicine. And Did they, like, un- like the ASP didn't have, you were the first to go in there and do that as a job. Was it the same with um, the, uh, sorry, was it the... The AIS system, the the Institute of Sports system. Now, I understand that the AIS was built in 82 and purpose-built to be a a place of services, you know, elite sport services for Australia's 
uh, well, Australian teams doing games campaigns or other world championship campaigns and things like that. So, yeah, for quite a long time, psychology, physiology, biomech, you know, and then the coaching and the PD, professional development for the coaching, all that had been going on since the 80s and, um, around our Olympic, Paralympic teams and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I, there wasn't much of that in surfing. Now, interestingly, and I mean, surfing is in the Olympics for 2012 or uh, 2020, or 2021, however it may <laughs> unfold this year. Um, Hold on. So the Olympics is going to go ahead? Uh, well, that's the current status, yeah. Is it wild? Is it wild? Like Japan's going, like, there's a lot of COVID. Yeah. There's, there's, there's skate. Yeah. There's, I just heard on the radio coming this morning in the car that there's, there's Australian skaters who are going to represent Australia are stuck now in the US with COVID from trying to qualify like it sounds like a big old hot mess yeah it'd be pretty challenging if you're in one of the positions of responsibility and decision making for that like IOC and then you know the host country and then you know being the um the chef de mission which is kind of the main uh the lead of the operations team for nations to make the decisions about what's going to happen with the teams yeah because um yeah it's a major global health issue in my experience, the Olympics is by far the largest event on the planet. By far. It's just, you know, absolutely massive. Multi-day, multi-sport. And then, of course, all the media entourage and entourage that actually travels with, you know, that huge population of athletes. And, um, yeah, it's a massive event to deliver without a pandemic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, it'd be. So do you think... I'm not going to say that. No, I was going to say like it's a financial decision, right? Then more than a health one, because if everyone's health best health was it, you'd say, well, I would. Yeah, sports an interesting thing, and and you know, I um I, I do a bit of work with the AFL at the moment, and the reason I raise that is because last year with the arising of COVID, you know, um, AFL basically shut down five, six, seven weeks but then looked at, well, how can we actually deliver a season? And as you know, they did deliver the 2020 season and they did it without a hitch in terms of, you know, being a sport that ended up a spreader of COVID and things like that. So they did a a fantastic job, right? And in my view, one of the reasons why that was a really wonderful thing for Australia uh, and the community is because their game of AFL is really ingrained in, in quite a majority of our population as something that people look forward to, people talk about. Obviously, there wasn't much match attendance last year, but the televising of that and the ability to watch that independently or in small groups when that was allowed, things like that. Um, And then, of course, because they had the hubs and there was the availability in some states to have crowds and things, uh, that, well, the sport in itself, you know, uh, enriches the community even if you're not one of the performers you know people align with clubs people you know even just being able to have conversations so oh yeah I, it's a religion I, yeah for people, you know yeah for some people it's at that scale so there i would certainly say that the olympics has got a resonance like that and you know then it's got the the nation side of it as well you know our country and how we're going to go i mean even just in surfing with australia's history of world champions you know I'm sure there's quite energy about, well, wouldn't it be great to have the first Olympic gold medalist in 
you know, male, female, and then, you know, there's the other categories that they've got. It's not just uh, men and women that are surfing. You know, it's adaptive surfing, a few other things that are happening at the Games. So, And it all, it's all in the pool, obviously, yeah. Well, my understanding is it's in the ocean. Oh, what? Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah around Chiba. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. I just thought, oh, there'd be a big pool and <laughs> have at it. Oh, I, I understand early days, as in a few years ago, that was proposed to uh, yeah, build a pool and have um, Olympic surfing in a pool. But it was uh, it seemed to be a pretty clear decision of the host nation and the IOC to say we want surfing as a sport that's origin is nature, <laughs> to be in nature at least in the first case. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm just going to – I want to jump back with your three years on tour. Yeah. Did you get to surf amazing ways? Like, was it a really uh, – we glossed over a little bit. Was it a, an awesome experience? Yeah, yeah. I really felt like, uh, you know, uh, as I shared before, I wanted to travel the world surfing. And to that point, my surf trips just included maybe a couple of Indo spots, you know, not really too far and wide at that point. So, yeah, to travel the world – uh, for three and a half years and you know do Africa and South America and North America and the whole Europe and few of the Pacific Islands and then Hawaii which had always been my dream you know that's like the Mount Everest for surfers and um, surfing Waimea Bay that was always the biggest kind of spreads on my bedroom wall you know surfers sometimes empty waves but sometimes surfers just on huge waves so to fulfill those goals were awesome you know to actually surf Waimea on solid days and and to feel like I was um yeah achieving childhood dream was just on a personal level that whole experience was amazing and then to like anything you know you're surrounded by the world's best at something in this case surfing and you know I remember surfing these left-hand pipes piping barrels this beach breaking in Portugal and um I, I wasn't really that good at pig dogging and working that out and you know Shay Lopez and people like that say, oh, put a bit of weight on your back foot, you know, and see what happens kind of thing. So you got, you know, I remember surfing Sunset and getting a few tips on the inside from Kieran Perot and then being out at Pipeline and something I see calling me into waves that I just wouldn't have even caught because you're not even in the hierarchy, but, you know, someone like that who I developed a good rapport with over the years is just like, yeah, you know, you go, you know. So I caught waves I would never have caught and uh, I learnt skills and improved my surfing uh, really rapidly um, and uh, yeah that, so that was a real gift to have the world's best kind of sharing with you how to surf better and you just when you're constantly seeing what's possible on a wave you try you know but when you're kind of in a space where that's that's the level you don't kind of often imagine I mean the best do but yeah, I'm not the best surfer uh, but yeah that creativity came in and it's like oh well, I'm, he can do it or she can do it so I'm going to have a go you know so yeah it was a wonderful experience on um, a travel level on a my surfing development level and feeling really calm and competent in pretty heavy waves and big waves and achieving some of those childhood dreams like Wyoming Bay was always my dream that's for me that is my Everest um, and to get to surf it so many times is unreal <laughs> you know so, so even now you know how we were talking about it before how you evolve and everything shifts perceptions shift and as you learn more uh, Wyoming was your pinnacle for early 2000s would you say it still would be today uh 
Oh, it's definitely one of the peak experiences in my life. But I, yeah, I've got uh, different goals, or you know, I guess like if it's kind of funny how generations move and stuff, isn't it? Because if if what was happening at Jaws now was happening at two thousand to two thousand and five, well, that that's that to where I would have gone kind of thing. And I actually wonder whether, well, maybe I should maybe give that a shot anyway, you know. Um, and then interestingly, after my time on tour, I would have had some of the, like, scariest, you know, really on-edge moments down the coast in Victoria. Felt way more fear than places like Wymere and things like that. Um, I mean, we've got some pretty big waves, really, and, and the way some of the waves down the coast break is, is gnarly, you know. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to have that locally and, uh, yeah, there you can set the bar locally and still feel like you're on your edge and, mm. and progressing. Yeah. And so I was the other day I was like, oh, fuck, Richie's coming over. I really want to get one of your books. And I couldn't find... Have you had, haven't had them? Because I honestly, I've got like books scattered all around this place that are 10 pages read, quarter read, half read. I, I really struggle to read. I have good intention, but audibly, I am an animal. Mm. I can just absorb if I'm listening. And I couldn't find any on Audible. Is there none? Uh, well, the surfer's mind I haven't made into an audiobook, but uh, yeah, watch this space. Uh, yeah, I think so. That's that's my intention. Okay, good. Yeah. Good, good, yeah. good. So you've published how many books now? Uh, two now. So yeah. I published The Surface Mine in 04, and um, yeah, pretty much I'm almost out in terms of hard copies, which is another reason to go to um, audio, plus that's going to be a lot easier to move around the world these days. Um, and my second book was not really intentional, uh, it just unfolded. Uh, it's called A Hundred Dawns and it's basically a hundred sentiments, poetic sentiments that unfolded during a, a fundraiser I did for Beyond Blue, a local mental health service, where I set the challenge to go down to Bells or close by and meditate for a hundred dawns in a row from summer through to winter. So you experience every kind of weather experience uh, that can come up. And I'd go to the Bells or one of the beaches close by a good hour before first light because I like to do the meditation in the dark. And then that very first light, you know, the first enlightening of the dawn, you know, it's usually when I would have been finished my meditation or something like that. And whatever sentiment arose, I'd pen it down. Sometimes it hadn't arisen in written form. So, because the other part of the practice was to physically be in the water for the sunrise. And it was a little bit like uh, lab to life or, you know, you do your, your personal development uh, activities, but you really don't know how good they are and how effective they are until you test them, you know. So I would meditate, you know, I do, I'd, which is a great practice to nurture your mind and your mental health. But then really, how does what I what unfolded in my meditation help me during my surf? So something might, some sentiment might come through like patience or kindness in the meditation. And then I paddle out at bells, four to five foot, dawn, sunrise, the pre-work crew are out there and it's a little bit mad and ratty, you know. (laughs) So how do I stay in that space of embodying patience for waves and just, you know, catching whatever share might be my share relative to how many people are out there and how many waves there are or kindness, you know, and I'm seeing unkindness when people are burning, snaking, dropping in, doing things like that. So that's kind of the lab to life where, well, okay, 
that's the second part of this. I can do my inner work, but you know, the primary intention or purpose of that is so that I can exist and thrive in the world around. You know, I, I nurture my world within so I can exist and thrive in the world around. And uh, so that's why it was the second part was being in the water for every sunrise and just dealing with whatever surf conditions and or crowd conditions or both that were presented. So, what, you know, you do a blog to get to, you know, stimulate followers and donations and things like that. So every morning I'd have a pre-dawn photo on the blog and whatever the sentiment was. And I've always written songs and poetry and stuff like that. So it just seemed to unfold poetically in verse and finished the fundraiser, sent the, you know, the money to Beyond Blue that I'd raised and didn't think much of it. That was 2016. And then in 2018, um, no, in 2017, I um, joined a local writing group because I just was yeah, interested in evolving my writing and you know, learning from others. And one of the people there, you know, at the first day I went, you know, introduced yourself. One of the people said, oh, you're the guy that did those poems in the paper because the local Surf Coast Times published the published you know, every fortnight a bit of an update on me to stimulate donations and stuff. And I said, yeah. And they said, oh, show us that. And so I opened my notebook and showed them the photos and the sentiments. They're like, oh, that's a book. You should publish that. So I thought, well, yeah, why not? <laughs> so I did. And, and it was really, um, it, was, it unfolded a really beautiful thing to do because um, not only was it a way to share ongoingly, like not just the fundraiser, but ongoingly in book form, you know, these beautiful 100 dawns, you, you know how the sky changes here from February to June every morning. It's quite different, the colours, the shapes, the dryness, the wetness, everything else in between. And then, of course, the surf conditions change. So pretty much every photo shows the waves in some way as well as the beach and the sky. And then you have this sentiment, which is, um, you know, quite moving and or quite uh, insightful so that it can assist you in your own inner self-study. But the other thing that unfolded was that, you know, the reason I'm here and love the beach and the nature so much, a big part of that was uh, my auntie Margaret, my mum's sister, who she was the one that built the beach house at, you know, Rose Bud near Gunner Manor on the peninsula. And, of course, mum and dad took us to the beach, but to actually have the experience to live down there six, eight weeks over summer and all that was because of Auntie Margaret. So it became, uh, yeah, something that I devoted to her too. She'd, she'd passed at the time. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of, you know, kind of beautiful feelings about 100 Dawns. And, um, yeah, it's something that I even refer to myself from time to time. So if uh, if you're any of the listeners here, like you say, Tiggy, you're not a long reader. It's one of those ones where you can literally flip to a page and the the verses are anything from eight to 60 words. I know that because I had an editor to go through and give me all the stats. But <laughs> <laughs> um, And uh, so you can just read a sentiment. That's what it might what might be that gives you the insight or the movement in that present moment through what you're doing inside or what's happening around you with friends or work or decisions to make and things like that. Do you, um, have you ever, have you replicated that again? Like just for your own personal? Uh, in, in different ways. In fact, interestingly, uh, in 2013, uh, like my last games campaign was London 2012 and, and I'd moved back here. Uh, and so in 2013, I just had the whole year off and I did a lot of yoga and things like that. And I'd never done Bikram or the hot yoga. So I did that a lot. There was a studio in Geelong. And so I did, they always had challenges. They did 60 day, 100 day challenges of just doing Bikram every day for 100 days and things like that. And so I've, I've had um, a few other little things that I've 
had thoughts about Andor Dana's devotions since the Hundred Dawns, but not actually doing a hundred sits on the beach yeah. in, in a row. That's full on. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it was quite interesting. I, I kind of describe it a bit like anyone who plays a didgeridoo might know that once you get circular breathing, it's almost like the didge draws it from you. All right. It's just this really beautiful yeah. rhythm that, that you, you get into. Yeah, and, uh, you get through, inside it. Yeah, it's really meditative. And so what I found with um, the 100 Dawns was pretty much after the first dawn, which was kind of like, oh, man, what am I committed to here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I can't find yeah. anywhere to go, kind of thing. In fact, that was the sentiment of the first meditation. You know, what's the purpose of the actual devotion here? Because that's got to be enough to sustain me. You know, and uh, but yeah, once I like the the answer to that, if you like, or the understanding of that came in that first sitting. And from there on, it was like playing the digit just drew me. Like there wasn't any effort or any kind of oh, gee, I don't have to get up tomorrow. It was just like oh, just this rhythm started from that first sit that just sustained the whole way. Are you naturally a morning person? I love yeah. this question because yeah. I'm not, and I wish I was. Well, if you ask my parents that question during year 12, they'd say, mate, no. But, um, yeah, once I moved to Torquay, really, that's when I became, you know, when I turned 18, I moved down here, and I could get up and go surfing every day then I became a morning person. And, I mean, like I was saying earlier, to go surfing with when my brother was driving us from Melbourne, we'd, we'd be up at four and going because that's what we yeah. – so it was kind of this – when you go surfing and you're based in Melbourne, you've got an hour and a half to drive. So you get up, you know, in the dark and you're quite used to that. But that wasn't my usual pattern. It was only to go surfing. And then when surfing was available every day, well, that was my daily pattern. And it's kind of always been like that since then. Um, and I see, I, I, I'm stuck in a cadence of, I'm a bit of a night creature. I still love my morning. I get up at seven, seven thirty, and I, I cherish it with a coffee and I'm opposite. I'll, I'll like check the news and yeah. it takes me till about 10 before I want to surf because I feel that I'm in my body. And like you say before, with those early morning crew, I remember the last time I got up at six and surfed at six, I had an argument before 7am and it just didn't feel good. You know, I was like, this is fucked. Yeah, I'd, right. I'd rather surf at 10.30 and things are a bit more relaxed, yeah. maybe in my mind. Yeah. Uh, the mornings have got an edge if I'm out pushing and my body's cold and I feel just yeah. slow. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I admire the fact that you can do that. Like there's some part of me that just wishes that I could pony up. Mm. and. Yeah, I mean, this might sound odd from someone who's – so passionate about surfing and basically built my life around it but it's pretty rare that I surf at dawn yeah. around here I'll go down the coast and surf dawn because you know that's kind of often the day you want to get down there early and all that kind of thing but I just find the busyness and the way that the uh, how fast and how significant the local population's grown that yeah it's, it's busy it's frantic it's um not as enjoyable as uh well uncrowded waves a good way it's an uncrowded wave in my view and your own you know your relationship with surfing shifts as you evolve too or as you age or however you want to describe it but you know my experiences of contentment and all that are you know they arise and they remain present from all sorts of experiences in the ocean not just getting a good barrel or doing two good turns and of course they are part of it I'm sure they always will be 
Um, but yeah, I, I swim and surf a lot with my dog. I, you know, I, I do whole, lots of stuff. I kind of like that peaceful experience with the ocean. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I'm never really flustered with how intense or dramatic the ocean is in terms of the challenge of the waves. But uh, yeah, crowds aren't something that I enjoy. And uh, so, yeah, I, I tend to make good choices about when and where I surf with, with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. I found myself driving away a lot lately just for peace of mind. It's just like, you know, I'll come back when it's onshore or... Yeah. <laughs> I take a, a less quality wave with less people, mm. you know, yeah. just so you, you can get your feel more and not have to hassle. Because like you were saying before, that predicament... Of like, you know, I, I like to, you know, I go through ebbs and flows of meditation and having a good filled up in, internal life and other times where I can't be fucked and I'm like, you know, they're going the other way. But um, you, you go from being in a good space to if I'm, ta- I feel like if I take that to the water and if it's, if it's cruisy and there's people and we're on rotation, it's fun. I, I'm mm-hmm. great at that. But as soon as it gets out of whack and people are, aren't acting their best and I'm not acting my best... It's I don't you don't come home in a, in, a, in a it's hard to snap out of that. Yeah, uh, yeah, you need to have a good perspective going in, you know. So because uh, of course sometimes I surf and it is crowded, but you just take a good perspective into that, and that kind of that big picture view assists greatly your moment to moment thinking and responding, you know. Uh, whereas if you if, if you kind of at the top at Winky or Bells looking, oh, it's just a bit crowded, you know, I'll go out, see what I can catch, then you've already got this perspective that's set up thoughts in the moment about what's fair, what's just, where am I fit, I haven't had a wave for it, like all these kind of cognitions are going through your mind. Whereas if you kind of look at the identical setup, the identical crowd, identical situation with... Oh, there's a few there. Like I, what I quite often do is look at, well, which waves are the unridden waves? And that now defines a strategy, which is my positioning, so that I can catch the unridden waves. People aren't even really going for this one or that one, you know. And um, it's a, you know, it's amazing how much it'll change from the previous perspective. So you actually catch a few waves, and then you can sometimes get in rhythms where you end up on a bomb because you've had a wave that people aren't really riding, and it means that you're paddling out in an odd spot and a wide one or something like that comes. So, yeah. And then you go into some of the teachings that you may have learned over time in your meditation or other places where, you know, you actually start to see the true value of these Eastern teachings like non-attachment. You know, that actually manifests profoundly in the present moment in a surfing experience. When I paddle out with no attachment to the outcome, i.e. my share of the waves, what I think is good or bad or just or not in terms of behaviour of others, well, I'm actually quite psychologically free and that manifests in my whole being, being quite free in that space. So um, that's where I like to share some of those understandings in the performance space with athletes or people in corporate or first responders or the other groups that I work with uh, in terms of performance psychology. Some of these Eastern teachings that have been around for centuries still apply in a very tangible manner in 2021 elite sport or elite corporation you know business capitalist realm or you know other spaces that you might want to that people are performing in well luckily what you said before um uh it's perception right and then so in today's modern world 
we've got all these new rules, regulations, social parfaits, you know, it's just like it's layer and layer and layer. But really at the core, nothing's changed. The, the universal laws of reality are the same and always have been. And so therefore the ancient teachings are just as relevant now with the new sets of the, 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 on top. Um, these really old, those realities still exist even though we sh- you know, can pretend that they don't because we're living in this new modern era. It's, it's, it's only a modern era because we say it is. Yeah. This is still just as relevant. Yeah, they're fundamentals to human existence, you know. So our our nature, you know, we're just another species, mate. We're just another ant on the anthill, you know. Um, we have a consciousness, but I, I believe every sentient being has a consciousness and it unfolds in however it's going to serve them to survive and thrive like ours does. Uh, but we also have a lot of seductions and temptations and very intentional crafted conditioning towards ways of behaving and ways of existing that aren't necessarily aligned with our true nature. So when you spend a little time on self-study, basically aligning with your true nature, you start to see all that and you're in a much more, you're much more in command of your decisions about that. Because it's not like, well, I can disappear from this, you know. (laughs) I mean, people do try to, but it's getting even harder and harder to do that, you know. Um, so how can I exist in this in a way where I feel like my, my soul is nurtured my capacity to love and be loved is present and invigorated and uh, I'm, I'm creating to the greater good of the anthill too you know, I'm contributing to the greater good of the anthill in some way too yeah because uh, I get that because I'm always thinking like this joint's cooked and i got to go but then I'm like where do I go and then you go, well, I go, you know, I don't want to say any names because people that live there would be like, don't fucking say it, however. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you could go and live remotely, but then it's like, okay, well, I'm there living remotely. And the reality of that is, well, now what am I doing? You know, I've removed myself from the madness of modern society and, and then, but then am I going to fulfill these other creative dreams that I have in this solitude? Probably not. Well, we can remove ourselves from the madness of modern society, you know, because that's, that's a decision, you know, a decision to buy into seductions, temptations, false conditioning. But what we often, you know, speak from a personal uh, decision, I choose to live here because it's close to my parents who are ageing, it's close to my family, it's close to close friends, things like that. So if I chose to be on the tropical island, yeah, I could probably, well, not probably, I would, I'd form new friendships, things like that, but they're, they're not the people that brought me to the planet, you know, they're not my parents, or, you know, I don't know how long they're going to be around kind of thing. So um, it is very hard to step away. So, you know, for me, the first place to step is to step inward, if there's a discomfort around. Whereas, again, some of our classical modern conditioning is to step further out to find the answer, the pill, whatever. Whereas when you step inside, you move into your heart and your psyche and you spend a little time, yeah, it's well worth spending a day or a week or even a little longer to gain an understanding or an insight about, well, what's going to serve here, serve me and my soul as well as the greater good or the situation, well then you can still be in the modern world but you're not so much in the madness of it you've let go of that element 
it's like the lineup, like we were saying, the, the crowded surf. There is a madness and an anarchy and a lot of things going on that are unjust and inappropriate and all that sometimes. But you can still surf and navigate a crowd without getting stuck in that. And uh, the thing you're in command of is your perspective and your decisions and how you choose to navigate it. You're not going to stop surfing, are you? No, this is true. <laughs> and you, honestly, when you see like the, the really good surfers, they off, they're just manoeuvring their way around a crowd. You seldom see them in a, in a dust-up or a verbal, and you see they're always getting waves, whether it's on the inside or the you know, outside. They're, they're playing chess, and they're good at it. Yeah. Yeah, often, often just that simple strategy of, you know, keep moving is, is a good one. Yeah. yeah. The line-up's moving, so why not be in synergy with that? Oh, I can't wait. I really want you to see, because you've just said, I mean, you don't need to see it because everything you've just said is in line with that doco that I was just talking about, that, the, the superhuman one. Mm. So, you know, the synergy and the universe has a pattern of moving like this and it's within us as well, mm. this moving circular. Anyway, I love it. Richie, I think I'm going to say thanks so much for coming over. Oh, thanks, T. Yeah, appreciate you inviting me to come and have a chat. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Richie Bennett. Um, now, Richie is available, uh, and as you can see, he is awesome, and I feel like I could have chatted to Richie for way longer um, on so many different levels. There's, it's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, anyway, thank you, Richie, so much for coming over. I really appreciate your time. I know, I know. well, I know after our discussion that you try not to be busy, but it's a, um, orchestrated non-business, um, and outside those, I know that your parameters are You've got a bit going on. So thank you. Um, and to all others out there listening, thank you so much for lending me your ears. I hope you um, enjoyed that, learned something. I'm, I'm not too sure, you know, like who knows what, who takes what from what. Um, it's always funny to see what lands. As I said in the chat, that, that there's a, hum, uh, a doco called Superhuman and it's um, – look, some of it's pretty fucking cheesy, I won't, I will be honest. But honestly, like I've been listening and thinking about these things for ages and the CIA, like I always read these little reports and things of like, you know, like we know the mind is way more powerful than we give credit for. Yeah, we're sort of just stuck in this sort of way of thinking and I'm not saying i got the answers here, but uh, it's always nice to think and, um, and look at some different points of view. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again and um, enjoy your day, night, morning, wherever this finds you. Okay. Adios. Adios.